Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The built environment and creating really vibrant, dynamic, interesting public spaces is absolutely critical to the cities going forward. And unfortunately, if you're in a big city, guess what? There's agency alphabet soup. Our urbanist stop tour of Munich continues as we bring you highlights from this year's Quality of Life conference, which wrapped up in the Bavarian capital last week. We'll be hearing from the team ensuring that the upcoming Olympic Games in Paris leave a long-lasting legacy in the built environment. Meet three urban fixers whose work is directly impacting cities for the better and talk about what's next for the public realm in the face of rising temperatures. All that, plus we sit down with the mayors of Bratislava and Dallas too. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. So, welcome to this week's programme. The radio desk might be all packed up, the auditorium cleaned and cleared, and the beer garden empty. But just last week, Munich was the perfect host city for our annual Quality of Life conference. The stage was buzzing with ideas, inspiration, and thought-provoking questions about how to make our built environment and urban areas better places to live in. One of the morning sessions was dedicated to the upcoming Olympic Games in Paris in 2024 and how the infrastructure being built for it, both permanent and temporary, will have a long-lasting impact on the city. We also wanted to know if sports can act as a soft power tool for a city's identity. Monocle's Fiona Wilson and Sophie Grove were joined on stage by Damien Combrede, who's the Deputy Director of Impact and Legacy at Paris 2024. Fiona began by asking Damien what the legacy from the Olympic Games will be. We can't tell people that it will be the most sober games in history, that we will cut the carbon footprint by two, that the budget will be reasonable and that there will be a legacy. There will be one, but a small one, to be honest. We will build one competition venue when London built six, Tokyo built nine, Athens built 17, and I'm not talking about previous editions. So it's really a new way to build the games. 90% of the venues we will use are existing or temporary. We'll just, you know, use the Eiffel Tower or Chateau de Versailles, the Grand Palais, and build something around it and undo it when it's done because we don't need the venue. First, we have them and we don't need new ones. So the one we built is the one we need. It's an aquatic center in Saint-Saint-Denis where we miss swimming pools. I mean, in France, two kids out of three entering a college know how to swim. In Saint-Saint-Denis, it's less than one kid out of two. And in some towns, it's two out of three or three out of four for a simple reason. They don't go on holidays and they don't have a swimming pool. How could they learn? So this decision was made to keep the swimming pool because it's needed. But, you know, you can't give everything. It's not Christmas. And you don't want this... uh, It's often an accusation of white elephants thrown around about the Olympics, that cities are left with huge debts and and stadiums they can't fill, and and that won't be the case at Paris. I mean, it does help that you have (laughs) Paris as the backdrop. You're very lucky to have... Exactly. Using the backdrop was really the idea and the energy that we don't put in infrastructure. Well, we put it somewhere else. We do have a village that will host the athletes. In fact, it's not really about sport equipment. It's small things that people have been waiting and asking for for decades. 
And honestly, local and regional and national decision makers were like, yeah, this would be nice, right? Having these soundproof walls to protect people living around the highway or putting these high-tension lines underground or having this bridge that will connect a big community with schools instead of having a 30-minute walk or needing to take a car. Yeah, we'll do it next year. And the Olympics have that power to create a momentum and a deadline and to be also one of the most visible events in the world. And basically, because it was for the Olympics, we may think it's fair or not, but when it was for people, it could wait. And when the Olympics came, it was the sparkle that had decision makers say, okay, let's do it. So maybe it would have happened anyway. We will never know, but we know that it will happen. And as a swimmer, I'm very excited about the Sen project because I know for decades, even presidents have pronounced this idea, we're going to clean the Seine, people can swim there, they can dip next to the wonderful you know, Pont Neuf. It never happened. But then almost this supercharged effect happens with the Olympics where Mayor Hidalgo has said, I'm doing it, and then I have this kind of mandate to do it because of the Games. Is it going to happen? Because I know there's a little bit of a chance that on the day of the event it might rain. But also, what is the legacy of that? And for other cities as well, the benchmark. The Seine is a good example of the effect of the Olympics and having people agreeing to do it. Jacques Chirac promised that he would swim in the Seine 30 years ago in his past, you know. The Seine is about having people working together. Well, first, it takes investment. It's a lot of infrastructure renovation. It's about tubes that you need to connect and clean. And it's a very technical issue along kilometers of the river, not just in Paris. It's mostly about what's before Paris. And basically, no one wanted to pay, and no one wanted to split the bill, and no one wanted to be around the same table. As you know, City of Paris... Région de France and state government are from three different political sides and agreeing, okay, you'll get the credit, I'll pay and you'll get the credit. This, you know, is what made it not happen. And the Olympics made people gather around the same table and say, okay, let's do it. And I can tell you, it will happen. I cannot assure that on the day of the triathlon, athletes will be able to swim in the Seine because there is a part of risk. There is a part of a big rain the day before, or, you know, an accident or anything, we can't be 100% sure. But what's sure is the legacy will be delivered because the investment has been engaged. And so I hope it will happen for the Olympics. I'm sure it will happen for Parisians and for people. Damien Combardet there from Paris 2024 in conversation with Fiona Wilson and Sophie Grove. Next, we had a masterclass in how to become an urban fixer, hearing from three people whose work on the ground is having a direct impact on citizens' quality of life. I was joined on stage by Monocle's Fiona Wilson as we met three changemakers. Elidi Obo, the executive director of Socius, showing how developers can create buildings with people in mind, designer and fashion brand owner Andreas von der Heider, CEO of Le Deux, who set up a foundation under his fashion label to help build community infrastructure wherever his business goes, from schools in Turkey to basketball courts in New York City. And finally, urban pioneer and thinker Carlos Moreno, an associate professor at IAE Paris and the creator of the 15-minute city concept. 
I started by asking Andreas why his fashion company is concerning itself with projects that enhance the built environment. So we've built a fashion company, but I see it as a platform for doing good things in the world, to be fairly honest. And we've been doing this since the very beginning. We've been helping. We didn't have a lot of funds in the very beginning. But as we grew, we got the chance to help out in communities. And the quality of life for me is human relations. And the human relations that we got with people, this school is from uh, Turkey. It's close to the Syria border. We got a lot of refugees coming over because of what's happening in Syria. And we found out that these people, their kids were alone in the refugee camps. The people was working from us. And uh, we said, we cannot have that on us because we're not only a company, we do have a social responsibility in wherever we are in the world. So yes, we are a fashion company, but we also a platform for doing great things. We don't want to be remembered for the next fit. We have something on our, on our heart and we want to tell that to the world. No matter whether it's putting kids to school, building basketball, we want to be part of the cities, part of the community and be part of the change in the world. And just before we bring everyone else in, you explained to me over coffee that you know, you've done lots and lots of projects, but you realised it wasn't going to work out if you kept on doing these individual projects that the word legacy needed to be added, as we heard about the Olympics as well. Yes, of course. So when we do projects throughout the world, we always say that one thing is building the project and next thing is to operate the project. So we will never build a school or a basketball court or whatever and leave it behind because back to the responsibility, back to being part of the communities. So it's not just to do something and then it's a lot of PR and then we're out. No, we are here because we can actually make a difference and because we got the responsibility as a company. We had it before with the architect where he went on and say, we are growing as a company but you have to do good for the people working for you or the people interacting. And that's how we are becoming urban fixers. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, does it add up in business terms? It's amazing you're doing all this work. Mm. But, you know, a lot of people here, we, talk, we hear a lot about CSR. Maybe yep. people are not that impressed with some of it. But does it make sense from a business point of view? Definitely. And people are so afraid of talking about being profitable and so on. We couldn't do this if we weren't profitable. But we don't do this because it has to be profitable. It leads to something good, and people want to interact with the brand. And our, first of all, our employees, they love it. So they feel part of something bigger than just the next fit or the next color and so on. But in the end, of course, Ledeau needs to be profitable, and we're not afraid of saying that. We are proud of what we are doing, but this is an important hard project. Carlos, you may be one of the most famous urbanists now around the world, one of the biggest thinkers about what happens in our cities. And partly, we were talking about good branding early on. You hit on a, a good idea, the 15-minute city. Much talked about, often a little misunderstood. Just tell us, what is the 15-minute city for you, and why do you think it's so vital at this time? In fact, uh, we have developed two twin concepts, the 15-minute city concept and the 13-minute territory. But the 15 of 30, the number in reality, it's not important. The core of this concept is this redesign of cities for offering massive services in proximity in a decentralized city to break with seven decades of zoning of the Le Corbusier segmentation. For a long time, we have accepted the unacceptable. We have accepted this zonification, segregation. We have considered that uh, the normality is a long distances to spend uh, several hours for having a daily commute. With the 
50 minute city with the 30 minute territory, and we have a lot of different nicknames. The 20 minute neighborhood, the 10 minutes in Brussels, the complete neighborhood, the vital neighborhood. This is uh, in particular just for noting that we need to redefine the quality of life. We have redefined this concept, the high quality societal of life. Elide, we need to bring you in here. I mean, you're in the business of actually turning ideas into reality. And Socius, you know, you have community in your mind from the beginning of your projects. It's very, very unusual. You were set up with social impact in mind. Tell us about how you're working. I suppose for us, we set up Socius as a force for good, where it's similar to what was discussed earlier. We were a developer. You know, we're in the business of building buildings and creating places, but fundamentally we should be delivering good in those places. We think it's a travesty that in some of our major cities we're creating significant developments, sometimes billion pounds worth of developments, and the community has does not impact from that at all positively. So for us, the starting point is always people. I'm a sociologist, so it's always how do we impact people? How do we improve life chances? How do we create the building blocks to make sustainable long-term growth in the communities we're working with? And then development is a force to do that. Yeah, and it's meaningful change, isn't it? I'm interested, because you're thinking about employment, volunteers. It's way beyond just doing a bit of public housing, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think that's similar to the conversation earlier on as well. There's an element of what's it got to do with you but actually people are our business and actually the impact we can have on people's lives goes beyond housing them or putting them in a space it's about all about the health inequalities that they face what about educational entertainment how do we make sure that people are growing up in this place and they see possibilities and they have access to opportunities that's important and actually as a developer it's possible for people to say stay in your lane build your buildings and walk away but for us that's not enough and what we're doing is as well as being a fixer actually we see ourselves more as an enabler you know we're bringing together a whole load of people to bring these places together and we think it's a responsibility of on our part to make sure every single person plays their part and that's everything from going into schools and explaining and helping people see careers in our construction to actually putting the building box in place to create proper sustainable growth putting the jobs putting education facilities in there and make sure that the community is mobilized to make those happen for the long term three change makers there in conversation with me and fiona wilson We kicked off the afternoon with an in-depth look towards the public realm. Investing in public spaces today requires solutions that deal with extreme temperatures and challenging community demands, while integrating sustainable approaches. We wanted to tackle these hot topics with three leading lights in urban development and design. To ask the questions, I was joined on stage by Monocle's Carlotta Rabello, and we were joined by Yating Liu, New York's first ever Chief Public Realm Officer, Eleni Marivoli, who's the Global Chief Heat Officer to UN Habitat, and by Sadie Morgan, designer and founding director of architecture practice DRMM. Carlotta started by asking Yating what her new role of Chief Public Realm Officer actually entails. No, that's a great question. It's also the question my 11-year-old asked me when I told him about the appointment as Chief Public Realm Officer, and he was just like, what the heck is that? You're in charge of the outside? What, what does that entail? <laughs> so you heard a lot of the themes, actually, from the morning panel in terms of what's happening to cities and central business districts, you know, post-COVID trying to recover in the face of this new reality that, like, we just have to adjust and adapt. And what is resoundingly clear is that 
the built environment and creating really vibrant, dynamic, interesting public spaces is absolutely critical to the cities going forward. And unfortunately, if you're in a big city, guess what? There's agency alphabet soup (laughs) touching all different jurisdictions from the street to the sidewalk to the curb to the playground. So if you're a business, you're a landlord, you're just a community group who wants to make some improvements, you're typically being bounced around agency alphabet soup to figure out they're there. So my job and my mandate is to kind of play that quarterback cat herding role within City Hall so that we are really mobilizing city government to focus on project delivery and implementation to transform a lot of these spaces. Lenny, I could see you nodding along there as someone who was elected <laughs> as deputy mayor for Athens and you know, also dealing with all this interagency particularities, let's put it. How challenging is that when it comes to the role of a chief field officer to try to have this interagency coordination and to get people to understand you know, the purpose of your position and to get on board with the ideas. I was thinking that this is more and more cities need the type of positions that pull together a lot of different things under specific kind of themes. And heat, extreme heat in cities is something that really touches so many different sectors that uh, it's really difficult, first of all, to get people to understand why it's important. Already, I think very few policymakers and decision makers understand that heat is the number one danger for city dwellers' health. And actually, I wanted to talk about this heart issue and heat because, you know, we've had an enormous... Just in Europe last year, we lost 60,000 people in 2022 in three months. And these are numbers that go way beyond any other kind of disaster, which is like a few hundred people or a thousand people or something like that. Like with heat, we get these crazy numbers and we still don't understand that we have to change our city. So you have to deal with the health sector, you have to deal with the roads and how they make asphalts and pavements. They have to deal with nature becoming much more radically part of our cities to make them to survive and sustainable. You have to deal with the economy and how tourism will have to change and how commerce will have to change because people retract when it's heat indoors and the city empties out. I mean, there's all these different aspects. The infrastructure, energy, like not to have blackouts, having backups for all of the... I mean, it's really, we have to prepare for a very hot future and people are just starting to wake up to it. Sadie has been on The Urbanist and an amazing interview and an extraordinary life story. I'll make her dip into one part of it in a little while. But I wanted to ask you first, you know, that you worked on the high-speed rail in the UK and you made them think that it's just not an engineering solution, that it should be a design solution. And now we're talking about here today about how we make things better for everybody. Extraordinarily, you've made the whole of the UK planning system pivot and add this into the process now so that design is always part of the process. Just tell us how you did it and what it means. In terms of design, I've run an architecture practice for a very long time and and now I advise government on infrastructure and housing and really about the importance of design and strategic design. And very few people really understand when it comes to, I think, the kind of political challenges and the engineering challenges that actually design has a massive part to play. So for High Speed 2, we wrote a design vision, really simple, climate people place, and we fed that through the whole of the design process. I set up a something called the design panel, so 40 amazing experts from across 
disciplines and we act as a critical friend to the project and we have made extraordinary changes from going from a transport project we've tried to encourage them to think beyond the red line to ensure that the project benefits are spread that means they need an urban integration team We've looked at climate challenges, carbon, sustainability, and the learnings and the successes from that made me... I also sit on something called the National Infrastructure Commission. We advise government on 1.2% of GDP, so all of their physical infrastructure investment, and we do that over the long term. And amazingly, you know, I'm an architect on the panel, what do I do? I try to encourage and explain through the work that I do, setting up a design group there, that actually design makes a difference, and we have to design our national infrastructure in a way that respects climate, people, place, and talks about value. We want to give people really practical examples and and things that you can take away and do and put in process you told me the other day which i just thought was amazing that you set a benchmark almost for high-speed rail because you needed to build a certain part of the project and rather than just let the engineers fix something up and then someone add a piece of architecture on top of it you did it slightly in reverse Well, I think one of the biggest things that holds back great infrastructure and projects is the procurement process. And when I came along, they're like, you're a designer. Why are you interested in the procurement process? I'm like, well, because that is where you state your intention. And if you say we're a design-led project, but less than 2% of the weighting when you set out your procurement is given to design, then you're telling contractors it's not taken seriously. So the first thing we did was up the percentage to 25% of the score. And we're talking multi-billion pound contracts here to say design matters so immediately contractors think we have to get a good design team we have to get a properly embedded design team but the other thing that happens is that on these big projects they just write the specification and when the projects go through the parliamentary process there's a very very basic design that's given just to kind of get through this sort of early planning process and that it's awful I mean, it's, you know, I, I was on record saying, if you design it like that, I'll throw myself off it. So I then sort of rod for my own back. Um, so we encouraged High Speed 2 to employ a fabulous architect and to do a specimen design. So they designed a viaduct, the Cone Valley Viaduct, and they did so with the support of the community. And the outcome of that was we were able to say to the contractors, here is a visual brief as well as your specification. We expect nothing less. Sadie Morgan, Eleni Miravilli and Yating Lu there. This is The Urbanist. And finally, we rounded off our urbanism coverage with a conversation with two inspirational civic leaders about what you need to turn a city around and keep it on track. One leads a US metropolis of scale, the other a compact European capital, but both have overcome hurdles to deliver meaningful change. I was joined by Eric Johnson, the mayor of Dallas, and by Mata Shvalo, the mayor of Bratislava. And I started by asking Mayor Johnson how he sells Dallas to people when speaking about his city around the world. Well, we don't lead with the Dallas Cowboys anymore. That's not been a, a good thing for us for about 25 years now, and we've been struggling there. But look, we talk a lot about the people If you've ever been to Dallas, a lot of you have, I think that's our biggest asset. We are a very welcoming city. And I know a lot of cities say that, but there's a warmth and and an openness to Dallas and a a very non-nativist attitude. I'm only, I think, the second mayor in the history of the city, and a city's 170 years old, to be born in the city. And we're very open to people from 
all over. In fact, probably the most popular mayor in history, hopefully someday people will think highly of me, but the most highly thought of mayor in actuality up to now was another mayor named Eric Johnson who served in the 60s in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. He was from New York, and his family was from Sweden. So uh, we've got a, a really, really great attitude, I think, towards letting people come to our city and make a, a life for themselves and uh, let them take leadership positions in our community right away. So we're very, very open. And Bratislava, you're going to conferences, you're meeting ministers, you're telling your story. What do you say that they should know about Bratislava? Of course, we are a beautiful city. We are looking for our identity during the last year and what we understand that we don't have one because our identity is very flexible, fluid, which is fantastic because we are the city which is ready for anything and everything. We are uh, ready to innovate. We are already doing it. We are completely changing how the city looks on the physical level. We're changing how the city operates. We are more going towards like digital and uh, digital services in a very high speed. So I think the fact that we, we are completely open to everything um, gave us a lot of sexiness. And I wanted to show a little bit of First of all, what's been happening in Bratislava. And then we have some nice pictures of both Dallas and Bratislava. Just talk us through a couple of the things that we're seeing. What are we seeing here? This is a new grill uh, pavilion in our city forest. We have beautiful city forest, 4,000 uh, hectares around the city. is one of the main future of the city. People love it. barbecue. It's a city barbecue, yeah, with a new uh, pavilion. Major, on the... Barbecue's big in Dallas. We like to think so, yeah. We're pretty, <laughs> we're pretty into it. <laughs> yeah, but this is like... Everything we're doing, we want to do in high quality, so we make architecture competition, and it's a very nice pavilion. I mean, this is a picture, it's full of people, and people are loving it. And you can yeah. see before and after images, maybe I, I hope it's a, you can read it. What we are doing now, we're just changing everything to the greenery, we're planting the trees, doing new parks. When I became mayor, this was at the parking lot, now is a public square. And let's that, give, you, give you one more to talk to before we bring back in Mayor Johnson. This is another thing. before or after. This is crazy. Was, uh, in this uh, guide and tourist was saying this is the most cheapest parking lot in Europe with a beautiful view on Bratislava. When I became mayor, it was like big parking spot and now is a park and there are no cars there. So We want to encourage other people to think that they could do something like these guys on stage. So first of you, Mayor Johnson, you're both second termers. You're back in for a second term. You started off as a lawyer. We know that lawyers in America can make some good money. Why did you decide to go for public office, and, and has it been worth it? It's definitely been worth it. I went into public life. Originally, I was a state representative or state assembly person or state parliament, depending on what you call it. That was my first job in public service, and I really entered public service originally because I, I had a really strong desire to try to help my immediate community, the community I grew up in. I was really driven to try to improve education, which is in Texas, a state level decision primarily. Uh, in Texas, cities don't have any authority over the education system whatsoever, not like in, in New York City and some other places in the U.S. So I wanted to impact education a lot. So I wanted to go to Austin, where the state capital was, and work on education policy. And I w did a lot of work on early childhood education, pre-K. Main reason was because I knew from my own personal experience that education was the great equalizer in, in American society. It's what is most responsible, in my view, for the social mobility that we, that we have. To the extent that people in, in our country um, are able to, no matter sort of where they start, to be able to make a go of it, it's because of, we have a pretty strong education system, but it had some real gaps in it, particularly in 
areas like the one I grew up in in Dallas, primarily people of color, poor area of the city. Um, we needed to do better. And so I wanted to go into politics initially to do that. After 10 years in Austin of banging my head against the wall <laughs> and trying to make some progress in that area and increasing partisanship, which you guys probably hear a lot about now in the U.S. Just, just now and then. Yeah, every now and then, I'm sure. I decided to run for mayor when the the role of mayor became open. The previous mayor termed out. You can only serve eight years max as mayor. And uh, there were a lot of problems I saw in Dallas that I didn't see being addressed by the folks who had announced. So I sort of jumped in at the last minute. I was the ninth candidate of nine to run and ended up winning. You know, I started in 2019. Within three months, I got hit by an EF3 tornado. And then shortly after that, COVID and the rest is sort of history. (laughs) And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week. And you can also head over to conference.monocle.com to see even more highlights from this year's edition of the Quality of Life Conference. And who knows, we might convince you to join us next year too. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Munich's Coeo with Coast to Coast, who, one half of which, DJed for us too. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. City Lovers.